into the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Please find Ephesians chapter 4. And I do hope that I haven't caught you too far off guard with the title of tonight's message. As you can tell, when, even when I'm preparing messages, I'm thinking about food. But I, I don't want you to be salivating too much tonight because we're not going to serve In-N-Out burgers this evening. And uh, so, so I'm, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to pass out hamburgers. And I'm not going to speak on the corporate model of In-N-Out burger either. We'll call Dalton Jr. and let him do that sometime for us. But this evening, I'd like for us to look here in Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to talk to you about this wonderful change that's been brought about in our salvation. I look over the congregation tonight, and I know that most of you here tonight are saved. And I, I feel like I could say that everyone thanks God for this change that God's brought about in your life. And you give the credit to him that he's the one who saw you in your sinful condition. You were on your way to hell and God in his mercy and his grace reached down and he lifted you up and he saved you. And I don't think that I need to remind this congregation that that was all God's doing. You didn't have any part of that. God, God did it himself. God even gave you the grace and the faith uh, to believe in him. And that's the reason that you're saved. And we find that in Ephesians, this is a truth that's stressed over and over again by the Apostle Paul. Now, we're in a section of the Scriptures where, as we teach verse by verse, we just have to go where the Bible takes us. And I have to preach what, the, uh, what these particular verses say, and so I intend to do that tonight. This evening, we come to the 22nd verse of the 4th chapter, and Paul has come to a conclusion. And that is, because you're saved, because God has reached down, and because God has taken you out of that miry pit, that you're to put off your old manner of life. Things have changed, you're different, now you're a Christian, and you're to live out that change that's taken place in you. Now, I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read our text verses tonight, and we're going to see what Paul says for us to do. We're going to begin here at verse number 17 so we can get the context of what we're reading here in verses 22 through 24. So if you'll please look at verse 17, Paul says, "'This I say, therefore,' And testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ." If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We just ask you that you'd help us to learn something tonight. Lord, may we look at these scriptures and accept everything that you've said just as you've said it. And may we grow in your grace and your mercy. And I just ask you, Lord, you might bless us as we preach this message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This evening there are numerous ways that I could have titled this message. I, I could have just titled it Out with the Old and In with the New. I could have said, put off and put on, but I decided to title the message, In and Out. What's been instilled in you by the new birth has caused the old desires of the old man to exit. What was out is now in, what is in is now out, 
And that's all been brought about by the operation of the Holy Spirit on the heart of the believer. Now, this evening, I'm going to preach part one of this message, and I'm only going to have time to deal with the first uh, part of it that, that talks about the old man. We're going to talk about that first of all this evening. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, that she put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. So I'd like to begin our discussion tonight by speaking to you about the corruption of the old man. He says, put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. Now, I know that everybody here is very well aware that I am a proponent of the King James Version of the Bible. I believe this translation of the Bible is, the, is just the very best that we can use in our church. I believe that the translators were godly, spiritual men. I also believe that their understanding and their talent for translation far exceeds any of the modern translators that we have today. I also believe that when those men began to, to uh, translate the King James, that it was a very formidable task. And that's because uh, English-speaking people, the American people, English people, uh, would spread the gospel of Jesus Christ all around the world. And certainly that's happened. After the King James was translated, it has been taken to all, all the continents of this world. And people have come to know the Jesus Christ through the preaching that comes from this Bible. So this wasn't a light task that the translators had. An accurate translation of the scriptures was needed, and God, I believe, very carefully guarded the translation of the King James Bible. Now, what I don't say about the King James is that the King James Bible as a translation is inspired. Even the translators didn't, didn't believe that. They didn't believe that they were inspired as they were translating. The only ones who actually had direct Holy Spirit uh, inspiration were those who originally penned the scriptures. The, the men like Paul and, and John and James and then, of course, Moses in the Old Testament and others who wrote the, the Old and New Testament, those men were spoken to directly by God and under Holy Spirit influence, they wrote down the scriptures. But the translations that we have today, uh, the translators were not inspired. But I do believe that the King James Version is the very best version that we can use. I'm not saying it's the only version that can be used, but I think that all others have to be put up against it and have to be compared to it. And uh, the, the King James Version is the standard. But having said that, there are some words in the King James Version that are archaic. Language changes. Since uh, the year 1611, when the King James was translated, we've had a lot of changes in our language. And it's for that reason that just about every preacher that I know, when they're reading from the King James, they'll, they'll take those archaic words and they'll explain what those words mean. And of course, that's what we ought to do. Now, um, should we have an update of the King James or, or could we update the language into modern language? Well, of course we could. That could be done. But the problem is that everybody who's tried to do that hasn't stopped at just translating Scripture. They've gone on to reinterpreting or adding interpretations to the Scripture, and that's the wrong thing to do. And so we believe that what we ought to do is just use the King James as it is, and we just continue to go on and explain all of these archaic words. And uh, if a person really wants to be a student of the Word of God, you can learn what these things say, and you can learn what the Bible means. Now, having said all of that, there is a reason why I'm telling you all this, and it's because in this, uh, in this verse number 22 that we've just read, we have one of those archaic words. 
Now, the word conversation here, he says, put off the former, that ye put off the former conversation. And the Bible word conversation does not mean the same thing today as it meant in 1611. To us, when we think about conversation, we think about talking to one another. We think about exchanging ideas with one another, speaking to each other. But the word here, as Paul is using it, doesn't mean that. What it actually means is much more. It means conduct and behavior. It means the way in which you live. Now, when Paul uh, used this word in Philippians 1, verse 27, he said, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And when he said that, he had much more in mind than just your speaking voice or what you say to one another. What he had in mind was that the whole way that you live, let your entire life reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's what it means in Ephesians 4.22 also, that you put off, we would say, your former way of life. Get rid of what you used to be. Now, the reason that we're to get rid of it, Paul gives it for us here, and that is that's because it's corrupt. And if you can read the book of Ephesians and come away with any other thinking than that a man is totally corrupt, a person without Jesus is totally corrupt, from top to bottom corrupt, inside and out corrupt, if you can read this and not come to that conclusion, then you've totally missed what Paul is saying here. You are missing the radical change that takes place when a person gets saved, when he has the new birth. Now, what we can't miss by reading these scriptures is the total impossibility that there is for a man in any way, shape, or form to come to God by himself. He simply can't do it because the Bible says that he is corrupt. And verses 22 through 24 are Paul's way of explaining this. He's showing us that these are extreme opposites. What you were before in the old man in verse number 22 and putting on the new man in verse number 24. Now, what we might not understand from reading the authorized version or the King James Version is that the tense of the verbs that are used here show us a completed action. A change has taken place and and something has been affected. It's all settled. It's all been done. When you get saved, you have put off the old man. And we're going to talk a little bit more, more about that in just a moment. But what about this corruption that he speaks of? How extensive is the corruption of man? And I would tell you that this is really, folks, this is the battleground for understanding the doctrines of grace. Just how extensive is the corruption of man? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, that we were born in corruption. We all started out that way. From the moment that we took on our, 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 we took our first breath, the direction of our life was always going to be against God. And that's because when we were born, we, we received a sinful nature from our parents. Our, our parents were sinners. Their parents were sinners. Our grandparents, all the way back to the time of Adam, men have been born in sin. And so we all have a nature that is totally against God. This is why David wrote in the Psalms, in Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked, or he says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. He wrote in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so you can read the Bible from cover to cover, and you'll never find a statement in the Bible where it says that there is any good in man. Man's corruption is complete. He's totally corrupt, totally depraved. And that was born into us from our natural birth. 
Now, as I say, this is the very battleground for the doctrines of grace. And if a person does not get this first point drilled into his head, if he doesn't know this in his mind, that man is totally depraved right from his birth, then he'll never understand why it is completely necessary that salvation must be all of God. We have to be totally dependent upon God. And you won't understand that unless you get this very first point. And that is, there's no hope and no possibility for us to come to God by ourselves. And yet, this is where Baptists have gone wrong. Most independent Baptists today have forsaken our Baptist heritage that taught, was taught all the way back to the time of the apostles, taught by Paul in the book of Ephesians, taught by Jesus in the gospel of John, and that's that man is totally depraved. Now, what I want to do tonight, unfortunately, I, I feel like I need to do this. I, I need to quote the words of a fundamentalist evangelist. And unfortunately, he is the vice president of a fundamental Baptist college, and most of you know him. Uh, And I'm just going to tell you where it comes from. It comes from the West Coast Baptist College and their paper, The Baptist Voice. And this man is speaking against total depravity. And he's speaking against the Bible's teaching that salvation is entirely the work of God. And what he's arguing in his article is that salvation is synergistic. In other words, salvation is a cooperative effort between man and God. Now, as you know, I preach that regeneration has to be affected by the Holy Spirit. And that's because a man is dead in trespasses and sin. And I preach that someone who's spiritually dead has to be brought to life before they can ever believe. And I preach that that coming to life and the ability to repent and believe the gospel is one operation of the Holy Spirit that takes place in regeneration. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit alone. Now, I want you to listen to his statement. And, and I hate the way it begins. Just the very first word. I hate the way it begins. He, start, he starts with if. And he's talking about salvation. And he says, if it is all about God. And God brings about regeneration. What about the people who do not want to get saved? In other words, what about those who don't will to be saved? Now, do you understand this, friends? Where is there a person who wants to get saved? Where is there a person who wills to be saved without the Holy Spirit first coming to his heart and speaking to him and and changing his heart so he can believe the gospel? I mean, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, that all are dead in trespasses and sin, it says that we walk according to the course of this world, that we uh, are in the desires of the flesh, that we fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It says that we're the children of wrath. Can you read uh, chapter 4, verse 18, that says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who are past feeling, who work all uncleanness and greediness. Can you read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where it says, the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine into them, and they should be saved. I mean, can you read John chapter 1, verse 13, that says, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And could you ever come to the conclusion that there's a person who wills to be saved? Is there anybody who wants to be saved and yet and, and will be saved unless God overcomes his natural opposition to the gospel? 
And yet this man, when his article, he emphasizes over and over again. He keeps saying this. Man has a choice. Man has a choice. Man has a choice. And then of all things, he quotes a scripture that's death to his own argument. He quotes John chapter 5 verse 40, where Jesus said, And ye will not come to me that you might have life. Right there you have man's choice. You will not come to me that you might have life. And that's the whole reason why, if you understand the Gospel of John, it's the whole reason why Jesus said in, in John six forty four, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So here you see it. The whole battleground is right here. Is it, as Jesus says, that there's no man who wills to come to Christ? Or is it as the college professor says in the fundamental Baptist college, oh no, oh no, man has not been so radically altered by the fall. He hasn't become so debilitated. He's not totally depraved. He's not totally corrupt. He still has some good good left in him. He has some good will in order to come to Christ. That's not in the Bible. And it's why that these people are convinced that salvation is not all of God. This is why they say that salvation is man and God. And they say that salvation is cooperation. And so if a man decides that he doesn't want to cooperate, then God's helpless. God doesn't have any say in the matter. And so the man's will is greater than God's will. So what do they think? The atonement doesn't really atone. The redeemer doesn't really redeem. The reconciler doesn't really reconcile. And the savior doesn't really save. He doesn't do any of it. Because in the end... The decision of life and death, the decision of whether or not you will be saved, it's not God's decision. God can't make that decision. They say it's your decision. And so they line up all of the people who've ever lived and died, and they say that Christ has done the same for all, and yet very few of them have been saved. Do you know what that means? It means that Christ fails unless you let him succeed. That's exactly what it means. Now, do you see what happens when you deny total depravity? Do you see what happens when you say that the old man was not really all that corrupt? You say that God's a failure. And you say that God's Christ's blood is wasted because you're the one who makes the decision whether or not the blood of Christ will actually save you. So the question is then, why does anyone choose Christ? Now, make no mistake about it, we're not arguing the fact that people choose Christ. We absolutely do believe that people choose to believe in Christ. But the, the, the problem here is why do they choose to believe in Christ? That's the crux of the matter. And the reason that they do choose to believe in Christ is because God pierces a heart of stone. God softens the heart. He makes man willing to come to Christ. And he has to do it, because if he doesn't, the corruption of man will not let it be any other way. Now, maybe you think that that's not important. Maybe you think it's all semantics. You say tomato, I say tomato. It really doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. It makes a difference whether our Baptist colleges today are indoctrinating students with theology instead of emotionalism. You read the article, if you want to, on our website on the failure of fundamentalism, and you'll see why that I've come to hate what fundamentalism is today. Fundamentalism has gone beyond arguing over the inerrancy of Scripture, and they've started reinterpreting Scripture and abandoning 
what our Baptist forefathers had believed and taught about salvation. The Bible teaches us that we're born totally depraved, we are totally corrupt, and we're helpless without God to change that. I'm going to depend on God. That's how I'll be saved. But that's not all, because this thing grows worse. I want you to notice also that we increase in corruption. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we're born corrupt, but that's not the stopping point. It's not that we have this level of corruption that we maintain throughout all of our lives when we, when we were born, and now that level is consistent throughout. No, we increase in corruption. Verse number 22 says that she put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Now, if you do a little bit of studying on this passage, and if you read A.T. Robertson, the great uh, Baptist Greek scholar, he says that it is a process of corruption. And he adds here in parentheses the words worse and worse. Now, I'm not particularly a fan of the New King James Version, but it does state accurately. It, it says there that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to its deceitful lust. Even the NIV has this right. It says, put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And so the idea here is that our corruption is getting worse and worse. Every day you're piling up sin. Every day you're sinning against God, and that hardens the heart even more. The corruption just keeps on getting worse. Now, it would be bad enough if we remained in that same corruption, the same level of corruption that we received at our birth, because that alone makes it impossible for us to come to Christ on our own for salvation. But it doesn't stop there. As you grow up, as you grow older, as you live your life, your heart becomes even harder against the gospel of Christ. Your sins cause you to be uh, even harder against what, what the gospel says. And so what this verse is doing is adding more nails to the coffin of a person without Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, Letha asked me to come in her class uh, over here in the school, and, and her, her students have a lot of questions about the Bible. Young people are inquisitive, and they ask a lot of good questions. And so they were asking me things about end times, and they were talking about angels and Satan, and they were interested in those kinds of things. But one of the things that we talked about was about the Holy Spirit and about how the Holy Spirit restrains evil. And my comment to them was, if the Holy Spirit did not prevent and restrain evil that goes on in the world, if he didn't restrain what's in the human heart, then all of us right here tonight, we would beat each other's throats. We'd be trying to kill each other because that's what's down in our heart. But the Holy Spirit prevents that. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart is desperately wicked. Folks, there's more corruption, there's more wickedness, there's more deceit in the human heart than you can even imagine. During the tribulation, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the world. His restraining power is going to be taken away. And at that time, people will grow worse and worse and worse. Sin will run rampant during that time. Now, here, you tell me how that when you're growing corrupt, getting worse and worse every single day, that somehow somebody is going to turn around just because there's a preacher who stands up here in a suit behind a, behind a desk and tells you that you're naughty and you need to change. How are you going to do that? How can you do it by yourself? Folks, the gospel falls on deaf ears unless the Holy Spirit opens a heart and changes our disposition towards the gospel. Boy, don't let anybody pay lip service to the Holy Spirit by saying what this man said in his article. Let me quote to you from his article again. He said, The Spirit of God obviously 
thank him for that, obviously has to work in the life in order for a person to come to Christ. But there must be a cooperation on the part of the individual with the Holy Spirit's conviction. Now, that sounds good, but let me just ask you a question about that. What does the Holy Spirit do in conviction? What's his job in conviction? Does the Holy Spirit come and he sees that wall of opposition that's been put up naturally by man? The one that doesn't want to come to Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes to that wall of opposition and he says, Oh well, I can't do anything here. He doesn't want to be saved. I can't do anything with him. Once again, folks, nobody wants to be saved. We've grown worse and worse in our corruption. Nobody wants to be saved. So here's what the Holy Spirit's conviction is designed to do. That conviction is there for the purpose of changing the stubborn will. And that's the only, only way. And it's only paying lip service to the power and salvation of the Holy Spirit to say that the Spirit must work, but then leave him without any power to do anything. Now, if you believe that, I mean, that's what you think about it. Just leave the Holy Spirit out of it. I mean, just have the decency to say that the Holy Spirit's not involved rather than to take him off to the side and tie his hands and tell him that you can't do anything, you puny little weakling. You might as well do that. Let me ask you, who saves you? You or God? Well, Paul answers that question, Philippians 2, verse 13. He says, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's God, not man. It's God and God alone. And it doesn't matter what the the professor at the Baptist college says, God does it all. Now, I need to go on because we have another point to cover here in the message. We see the corruption of the old man. And folks, that's radical. It's debilitating. We were born into it. It gets worse and worse every day. But now let's talk about, secondly, the crucifixion of the old man. What is it that we have to do with this old man? Well, we have to crucify him. We've got to put him to death. Now, remember this. I told you in the beginning of the message that the tense of the verbs shows us that this is an already completed action. And so when Paul says, put off the old man, and he says, out with the old, that's really something that's already been accomplished in salvation. But there's another sense in which he means it here, and that is that we have to realize that this has been done. We've got to start living like that's actually been done. We're not to live in the old man, and we're to put that old man up, man off because he no longer has a grip on us. So why can you throw him off? Well, the Bible says he's dead. He's dead, so, so why are you carrying him around anymore? Paul wrote in Galatians 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with Christ. So the old man's been defeated. The old man's gone. He's now in the grave. Now, do you understand that that's one of the pictures that we have in baptism? Baptism shows us that that Christ died, he was buried, he was put into the grave, he arose from the grave, and it shows a picture that we will also arise from the grave in the resurrection. But baptism also shows us that we've died to our old way of life. It's a picture of that. We've risen to walk in the new life in Christ. Now, I want you to take your Bible, if you would, please, and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Now, we're dealing here with the old man. We're talking about the negative side 
Next week, we're going to come back and talk about the new man on the positive side. But Paul's speaking about the old man in Romans 6. In the first part of this chapter, he's explaining how that we're buried with Christ in baptism. And he tells us that like as Christ was raised, so shall we also be raised in the resurrection. But now he says in verse number 6, Romans 6, verse number 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, verse 11 says, that's important. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. So the argument that he's making here is that we throw off the old man because that body of sin no longer controls us. Now, if something's dead, then why would you fear it? If a wild animal comes up on your porch at night and he's growling at you and acts like he's going to bite you, but you go out there if you're 30-30 and you shoot that animal between the eyes and you kill him dead... Why is he to be feared anymore? He's dead. You don't let that fear, that emotion uh, uh, have any sway over you any longer. And this is what Paul is saying. It's exactly the same thing. Because the old man is dead, throw him off. It's a corpse. It doesn't hold any sway over you. Now notice what Paul says in verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Back in the Civil War times, the... Slaves were freed. We all know our American history. Each of them had been granted freedom by the Emancipation Proclamation. But there were many of them that didn't realize or didn't know or were afraid to claim their freedom. And so there were many of the slaves that went back and they lived on plantations. They continued to work just like they did before, as if they hadn't been freed at all. They didn't realize the freedom that they now had. And Paul is showing us that this is much like a Christian. I mean, because we had this old way of life, because we were used to the way that we lived before, because that was our practice, because that's our custom, we just go on living like we're still encumbered with that old way of life and that old man. But the Bible's telling us that we've been freed from all of that. Now, it's certainly true that there are some churches that like to put people right back under bondage again. Unfortunately, some of the, uh, those in the uh, fundamentalist movement, they, they like to, to keep people back in bondage. They like to keep people in slavery and fear. People think that keeping the rules, I mean, that's how I'm going to serve God. And, and you just give me the rules that I have to keep and, that, and, I'll, and I'll serve him that way. And I'll serve God out of fear. Folks, that stuff needs to be thrown off. That's a bunch of junk that needs to be getting rid of. Learn to love the Lord and serve him in a spirit of freedom. Don't serve him out of bondage. Now, it's true, you're a bond slave of Christ. The uh, the Bible does teach that. But you choose to remain that way. Why? Because of your love for Christ. You don't serve him because you fear somebody's going to slap your hands if you're not keeping somebody's rules. That's Paul says, we don't need any of that stuff anymore. Throw that stuff off. 
Now, let me show you two things. We'll be done with the message tonight. First of all, you need to dethrone sin in your life. Now, the picture that Paul has here of putting off and putting on is just like a person puts on clothes, like putting on a garment. And I like to think of it this way, that there's some types of garments that you don't want to wear. I like to think of it about a king and the, and the types of things that he wears. You know, the Bible tells us that when we get saved, that we become kings and priests. And there's some things that a king wouldn't wear. He's not going to wear old, tattered, filthy garments. You wouldn't wear those. Now, John Gill comments on this, on dethroning sin and the old man. And he says, it's a putting him off from his seat and a putting him down from his government, a showing no regard to his rule and dominion, to his laws and lust, making no provision for his support, and particularly not squaring the life and conversation according to his dictates and directions. And therefore, it's called putting him off. And you know what that tells us? It says that getting rid of this old man is an active pursuit. That's something that you have to take out, off, uh, out after and you've got to do something about it. You don't get rid of your old man by just wishing that he'd go away. You know, some people will do this. They think about the sin and they, have, they have in their life and they say, you know what I need to do? I need to pray about the sin in my life. You know, I could ask you a question about that. What are you going to pray about? I mean, do you still need to make some kind of decision whether sin is evil or not? Is that what you're going to pray about? You don't need to pray about that. You need to get rid of it. How long are you going to hold on to your sin while you're still praying about it? Paul doesn't say, get down on your knees and pray about that old man. He said, get rid of him. Put him off. Throw him away. You're saved until you don't need to live with that old man anymore. Don't pray about him. Get rid of him. You know, I like what one writer said. He said that justification is by faith only. Sanctification is not by faith only. What does Paul have to say about that? Well, he says in Philippians 2, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's what you do in sanctification. You go to work. The Bible says, Be ye holy as I am holy. Now, that's telling you to do something. Get out there and do something about it. Now, unfortunately... Our fundamental brothers in their colleges have got the place to work all mixed up. They want to put work in there with justification by helping God save them. To them, justification is when God does his part and you come along and you do your part. And so they've got it mixed up. They think salvation is that synergistic, cooperative effort with God. Folks, the time to work is not in justification. It's not in regeneration. That's God's prerogative. You leave all that up to God. The time for you to get to work is in your sanctification. And you start by dethroning sin. But when you dethrone sin, you can't stop there because you're not going to exist with a vacuum on the throne of your life. You just don't get rid of sin. You have to put something back into its place. So here's what you do. You enthrone Christ in your life. You dethrone sin and you enthrone Christ. But I have more to say about that next week when we talk about putting on the new man. But when you get rid of sin, something has to come and sit on that throne. Now, really, I need to make some explanation here because sometimes when we use these kind of metaphors, people will get confused about it and it kind of leads you down the wrong path. When you become a Christian, there's no sense in which you can come to Christ and be saved without Christ becoming the Lord of your life. That's an impossibility. 
Now, some people like to preach salvation in this way, that somebody comes along and gives you a three-point presentation and asks you to say a prayer, and then you're saved, and they never say anything at all about repenting of all your sin and, and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And if a change never takes place, well, that's okay with them. They still count you as one of their converts. There is no sense in which you can become a Christian without God, without Christ, becoming the Lord of your life. There has to be a change that takes place. And if you got saved without a change taking place in your life, you didn't get saved. I'll put it to you simply. So what do you do when, when, when you sin as a Christian? Well, you remind yourself of how inconsistent it is for a Christian to live that way. You remind yourself that, that this is not what God wants. And, and you can't call yourself a Christian really and continue to live in that old life that you had before. Anybody here like a hypocrite? Raise your hand if you like hypocrites. Nobody likes a hypocrite, do they? Matter of fact, that's one of the chief reasons that people give for why they don't go to church sometimes. They say, well, there's nothing but hypocrites down at the church. Well, do you know what a hypocrite is? Every time that you let sin creep into your life and you hold on to that sin, you're a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who talks one way, says they're one thing, and they act and do a completely different thing. That's what a hypocrite is. Is that you? Is that the way you live your Christian life? Have you dethroned sin and have you enthroned Christ? Or do you just like to talk the talk? And many Christians do. They can talk the game real well, but they haven't really enthroned Christ. Paul says here, out with that old man, bring in the new man, in and out. In with Christ and out with you. Paul said, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about part number two of In and Out. And we'll talk about putting on that new man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the time we have to preach your word, the truths that we learn from it. Lord, help us to have this truth stricken down into our hearts and planted there so that we know what we believe and why we believe it. And Lord, I just pray that you would help every, every church member here tonight, every Christian, to enthrone you in their lives. Realize that the old man is dead. Put him off. Get rid of him, Lord. That's what we need to do. Bless your people tonight in this time of invitation. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.